Good morning, uh, good evening, depending on where you're joining us. Uh, uh, Ruben, are you joining us from abroad? Are you allowed to even tell us your locations? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm allowed. I, I, I just came back from work travel. So I, I went to, to Kenya for a meeting with officials of South Sudan. Oh, right. Government from the Ministry of Justice of South Sudan, where there are ongoing efforts to implement a peace agreement but um i'm back so i'm in new right. jersey new york area so attorney Carranza, this is related to your work with your center right right yes exactly just want to make sure maliko baka since our last talk you've been hired in a new position in the un or something like that you're not too far <laughs> from here, right? <laughs> right yeah right i think since the last time we spoke i did right. go to sudan which is you mean South Sudan used North, to be part Khartoum of or South Sudan. Oh, yeah, South yes, Sudan. Khartoum. I went to Khartoum, uh, and I was there for a few days. But uh, after I left, war broke out uh, about a month right. later, and so that's how difficult it is to do the job I do sometimes. Where um, no, no matter what you do to try to move justice and peace agendas forward. Um, there will always be the possibility that it won't happen or that it, things will even get worse. Yeah, and then, of course, a neighboring Ethiopia situation is also quite crazy, right? I mean, you had no less than Nobel Peace Prize laureate overseeing, some would say, not only mass atrocity, but one of the worst mass atrocities in recent times, right? right. Uh, the, uh, do you have right. an update on the Ethiopia situation? I mean, it was really insane last year, and it was just buried because of the mm -hmm. Ukraine war. Um, and I hate to say it, but I just felt you know, both crises deserve their name. We're dealing with all human beings, right? I, mean, I love Ukraine. Exactly. You know, Ethiopia, they're also <laughs> human beings, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and on your last point, that, that's very important because um, Ethiopia, like you said, uh, went through a war that some would even call genocide. Exactly. Uh, but at the same time, um, it was also a, a preventable war. Uh, it, it wasn't something that... that you know, wasn't building up over time. It was building up over time. And, and I think so, that sometimes um, external actors ignore these signs and um, giving the president of Ethiopia a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, finally going into a peace agreement with another neighbor uh, doesn't right. mean that you're not enabling him to, on the other hand, uh, oppress his own people within the country. Uh, but as of now, we, we do have a program in Ethiopia. And as, and as of now, I think things have subsided to the extent that mm -hmm. uh, there are efforts to not just go for a ceasefire, but actually um, begin to withdraw from the battlefield. And that doesn't mean, however, that uh, that's the end of the grievances that were precisely right. led to war. And that doesn't mean that it also ends efforts to hold those who committed the worst atrocities in this latest escalation to, to account. So um, that that's always the other side of peace, that there must be justice after peace begins, and you have to be careful about pursuing justice in a fragile situation because you also don't want to upset the, the peace that you have extracted from warring parties. Yeah, I mean, the, the situation in Ethiopia is quite crazy, right? I mean, my fear is, is this is just a deadlock. We had accusations of, you know, other countries from the Middle East getting involved with their drones, sales of drones, 
Same thing now we're seeing also in Khartoum. So it's no longer just the West or China interfering in African conflicts. You have Middle Eastern powers also interfering. Mm -hmm. The Emiratis have their own uh, voice there, uh, you know, running the show from Libya to Ethiopia. So, you know, there are people who talk about multipolar world and they're so excited of the decline of the West. And I always say, well, there's hegemony and it's tyranny and then there's chaos and multipolarity. Right. And when I look at Africa and a lot of regions of the world, I'm very worried about the post-American world. I, I, I'm no fan of American hegemony, but what's coming out of it is, is really, really troubling. So, um, but how do you keep your sanity? Uh, I mean, it, it must be a very frustrating job, right? You go there, look at transitional justice, look at an element of sanity and humanity, and then boom, the next thing you know, there's another war breaking out in a neighboring country or some province of the same mm -hmm. country. Well, I, I think what's important, and, and I also give this advice to other human rights activists that, yeah. I, that I work with, um, it's important to look at small victories, to celebrate small victories. Uh, I think that's what can power you forward. That's what can give you momentum. And if it doesn't give you momentum, at least it gives you time to breathe, time to consider what you've already accomplished, time to decide uh, how far you can still go. Um, we, we should not belittle these, these small right. victories that we get out of our work because they, they, they constitute what might become bigger victories in the future. Right. Speaking of small victories, uh, ICC, right? uh, we keep on hearing that ICC is a colonial institution. This is supposedly a legal analysis by some officials in you know where. Uh, some are saying it's a white man's court. Well, in fact, if you look at it, not very white man. In fact, there are even colored women there, uh, including the former chief prosecutor. So obviously, some are not doing the, even their basic Wikipedia. Um, but some are also saying, and yet, we just got an update. Uh, speaking of Africa, of course, South Africa is, is hosting this year's BRICS summit events, uh, Brazil, Russia, and China. This year is particularly big, of course, uh, Ruben, because they're going to discuss, you know, BRICS currency. They're going to talk about the new world order. Obviously, the Ukraine issue is there. They're going to talk about potential admission of new powers, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, Argentina are in the mix. So this is probably going to be a kind of a landmark year for BRICS. And yet, Someone uh, could not, uh, is not very welcome in South Africa, and his name is no less than uh, Vladimir Putin, right? So, upon uh, mutual consent, Dal Putin could not make it or will not make it to the uh, BRICS summit in the coming week or so. And there are also discussions on perhaps him also skipping the G20 summit in India, a country that is even closer to Russia strategically uh, later this year. Uh, what was your take on that? Did you see this coming? Do you think this is relevant in any way? What does it say? Um, um, well, if not me, Vladimir Putin, more importantly, should have seen this coming. Um, it's important to remember the context. This is South Africa. This is a country where there was an earlier attempt a few years ago to withdraw from the South ICC. America, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, activists in South Africa, from the left as well as from, from the right, in fact, um, actually took the same effort to challenge the withdrawal uh, from the ICC. They went to court and they won. Uh, the, the government High court of, of South, South Africa. Africa. The High Court of yes. South Africa. Yes. The high, the, the high Court of South Africa, they, they won a demand that South Africa withdraw the withdrawal. In other words... Uh, not withdraw from the ICC. And 
So uh, South Africa remains a state party to the ICC. But what that tells you is that um, some of these legal issues, the uh, authority of the ICC, the enforcement of its uh, orders, including its warrants of arrest, the idea that the ICC can only work if uh, states actually took it seriously and that states treat each other equally as ICC right. member states, right. um, these ideas are taken seriously in a country that knows what inequality is like, in a country where activists realize that if you don't take these questions of um, enforcing and respecting what your constitution says, what your right. treaties require you to do, um, things will go back to the kind of situation they had under apartheid. So what happened here was that um, Russia and its diplomats, I think they did realize that it was going to be a problem for Vladimir Putin to go to South Africa, even without the ICC case, as a matter of fact. I think even without the ICC case, he would have faced um, challenges. Uh, you, technically, South Africa has domesticated the ICC treaty, meaning there is there are laws in South Africa you can use to actually call for the prosecution of war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, right. committed by other people. So that could have happened. In in any case, um, I think there, 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 this was a diplomatic way out. And I think mm -hmm. it's fair to say the South African government, I think, realized how, it, it's been trying to uh, follow the middle line here. Uh, they have not outright condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. On the other hand, they have also tried to facilitate some ways in which there can be, if not peace, at least a ceasefire in Ukraine. So to, to, to be right. fair to the South African government, it they haven't taken one side or the other in ways that close the door to peace. Yeah, the reason I, I mentioned the South African case is because it's a very familiar case, right? It may seem like a country so far away, but A, you had exactly this precedence whereby there was also an attempt by the previous a more controversial administration to take the country out of ICC. Uh, and then, of course, you have a country that is now technically neutral on the conflict. That sounds very Marcos Jr., if not, of course, Duterte. So both Duterte and Marcos administration have taken that. And of course, just the other month, you had the African delegation led by the South African leader who visited both Ukraine and, and Russia to kind of help mm -hmm. facilitate the situation there. So... And, and and not to mention uh, earlier this year, and this is what's absent with the Philippines, perhaps that's what Duterte wanted. In fact, there were joint naval drills between South Africa and the Russians and all uh, to the south of the equator, right? So given how close the two countries have been economically, strategically, and also personal relations between leaders, what's fascinating is that, as you also correctly argue, it's not just the ICC, it's the embeddedness of ICC values in the very fabric of the legal and judicial institutions in South Africa that would have always raised concerns, right, uh, for someone like from Putin. I wonder, is there a similar situation in the two other democratic members of BRICS, let's say uh, Brazil or or India, uh, if, if Putin were to go to India and, and Brazil also in the future? Well, India is not a party to the ICC treaty. So um, there can be an argument that um, there is no obligation on the part of India to 
enforce any warrant of arrest, any orders from the ICC. On the other hand, uh, you do have the same kind of um, social movements in India. Uh, some of them more westernized in the sense that they'll simply argue that you know rule of law represented by the ICC requires India to respect the treaty nonetheless. And then you have uh, more progressive uh, social movements in India as well who may not necessarily see the ICC as a you know, uh, simply a objectively neutral court, but at the same time believe that um, getting its orders enforced in India can also help Indians fight for their own human rights. So that's a possibility. Uh, Brazil is hard to read. Lula is a progressive, but at the oh, same time, Lula is also... Yeah. Lula is also a populist, and yeah. you have a country that's divided between two populists, and therefore, necessarily, this is a, a country where the fight involves populist versus populist, and so you have to take into account what the popular sentiment is. Not the best way to govern, certainly, uh, but at the same time, I think also required by his, his situation as a, as a leader confronted by you know a, a fascist that still challenges uh, his election. Yeah, I appreciate the, the discussion of the issue of Lula because I think now in the Latin American case, you're having a big debate. Uh, you know, you have no less than the Chilean president, who's I think my age, right? I think he's 35, 36. See, Boric, you know, who has been coming out very strongly saying, Ukraine of today could be us tomorrow, right? And this idea that uh, because we're against Western imperialism, we'll just turn a blind eye to what the others are doing. That's to total nonsense. So mm -hmm. we're seeing the new generation of leftist leaders, right, coming out and calling out this unfortunate, I call it Cold War leftism that Lula and many leftists in the Philippines tend to subscribe to, you know. Uh, it is the Philippines, I don't want to drop names, but we have a situation where in my university, in UP, halfway, wait lang, di ba ito mga katatay, ka-China, now suddenly they're hiding behind these progressives to to question the Ukraine situation mm -hmm. and all of that. So it's very, so I'm very glad that uh, young leaders like Boric are coming out. Uh, you also had people like Varoufakis, of course, in the case of Greece, also coming out and saying, look at what happened with the Prigozhin situation, that uh, Putin was comparing that to Lenin taking over. Uh, uh, towards the you know the uh, the second revolution within the revolution of 1917. So Putin mm -hmm. hates the left. That's very clear, right? If you look at it. So I don't know. I just felt um, this this war in Ukraine and all is also exposing a lot of ideological fault lines and debates, which is relevant to us in the Philippines because I think if you look at mainstream Filipinos, a lot of them feel that the left in the Philippines is not strong and progressive enough on the West Philippines issue or anything that has to do with China or Russia. Precisely because of this ideological blindfold. I mean, it's all good to hate the West for what they did 100 years ago or 50 years ago or what they did in Iraq. But let's not forget what's happening in our own backyard, for instance. Now, I don't want to go to the arbitration case issue. We can talk about that a lot. But the but obviously, you see where this discussion is going. Because within a window of 12 to 18 hours after the Putin announcement came out, uh, the awkward announcement came out, you had uh, the Secretary of Justice of the Philippines making uh, essentially a public uh, advice no, uh, to 
remnants of the previous administration, including one senator of this republic, right, Bato de la Rosa, and also the former president Duterte, who just had his Kissingerian moment in Beijing as a special guest and friend of China, uh, advising them not to go to European countries. Or certain countries. You know, Kissingerian can mean war criminal too, right? Well, I'm, I'm, well, I had a conversation with Kissinger earlier this year. I'm looking forward to talk to him still, you know. Um, I'm not a fan, but I want to keep the communication channels open. But, but going back to this, um, how do you feel? Uh, I mean, how do you feel about this? That you know, you suddenly have the DOJ secretary coming out. Is it the job of the DOJ to warn the previous administration? Hi guys, ingat naman kay John, travel, travel kay shopping place in London or something. What's going on there? What, what what is what is funny but at the same time tragic about this is that uh, government officials in the Philippines can't seem to distinguish the interests of the state and the interests of Duterte and his allies who may or may not be uh, prosecuted by the ICC depending on the outcome of the prosecutor's investigation. They they can't distinguish between the state's position with respect to the ICC. And to me, they are entitled to make arguments that uh, they have been making uh, in the ICC proceedings so far, uh, challenging the application of complementarity, questioning whether uh, the prosecutor's decision to investigate ignores the so-called investigations that they claim have been carried out in the Philippines. I think these are arguments that any state will make if it were interested in putting forward its view that it is willing and it is able to um, pursue accountability for the kinds of crimes, the international crimes that fall within the ICC treaty. But that's the state. That's right. the interest of the state. The Department of Justice Secretary, the Solicitor General, they are not lawyers of Rodrigo Duterte. They exactly. are like lawyers on? of the state. Um, on the other hand, giving advice to potential defendants to the ICC, I think, is um, an indication that they can't seem to uh, also remove the political aspect of their role as Justice right. Secretary, as Solicitor General. And, and, and that's the other unfortunate side of this, because um, this is a situation where the interests of the Philippines has to be seen in a very long term, in a strategic way. If China, for example, were to, let's just say, join the ICC treaty, the ICC, um, the Philippines would have an interest in seeing whether there is a remedy uh, in the ICC that might be available should Chinese officials, Chinese Navy right. soldiers, I mean, there was an right, carry. Yeah, there was an effort to exactly. target specific Chinese leaders, including Xi Jinping, for being behind the violation of Philippine sovereign rights and damage the ecology and livelihood. Right, and 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 that's the and that's the point of, and that's why it's important to distinguish between your role as a lawyer for the state, as a representative of the state, and someone who I don't know, I don't know what the right Tagalog word for it is. Nakikisaw-saw ka dun sa problema ng iba, no? I mean, um, if Harry Roque said that, I would I would be okay with that, right? I mean, if Harry Roque gives <laughs> public advice, I I'm not sure I can follow Harry Roque anymore because I think SMNI is still banned on YouTube and all. But I look but, but here, yes. GTN. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Here's here's a very important thing, Richard, that has been overlooked by, understandably, overlooked by a lot of Filipino journalists uh, because yes, it doesn't 
it doesn't appear immediately and it's not something you see on the surface of of this ICC case of the involving the Philippines. Um, the Philippine government, and I, I, of course, the journalists in the Philippines have covered this to that extent. The Philippine government hired a British law firm. Right, yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Bedford Nine uh, Row, which is BR Nine, that's what they call themselves. And and lawyers in BR Nine have represented different parties in, in different cases, including at the ICC. One specific lawyer, his name is Stephen Kay, uh, is important to this discussion because while the uh, lawyer uh, officially representing the Philippines at the ICC is uh, Sara Bafadel, uh, who is a lawyer within BR9, uh, her senior lawyer is really Stephen Kay. And Stephen Kay depends on... Um, whether you're Stephen K or not, Stephen K is notorious for representing ex-dictators, uh, incumbent presidents, accused of war crimes, crimes against humanity. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with representing ex-dictators or war criminals who are accused of war crimes, people accused of war crimes, crimes against humanity. That's the job of a lawyer. Um, the problem is that some of the cases, some of the clients that BR9 and Stephen K represent have also been accused of intimidating or even killing witnesses and mm -hmm. people that are involved in ICC cases. So Stephen K represented Uhuru Kenyatta, former president of Kenya, yeah, yeah, when yeah. he was charged at the ICC. And so far... At least 13 persons have been killed or disappeared. Kenyans have been killed or disappeared, connected to the case. And there is no explanation whatsoever on the part of Stephen Kay whether he's aware of this and what, what his concerns are about this. Um, as a footnote to this, the co-accused of Uhuru Kenyatta in that case was his then vice president, but who is now president of Kenya, William Ruto. And the lawyer of William Ruto in the ICC at that time was... The prosecutor of the ICC at present, Karim Khan. Oh. So there is history between Karim Khan and Stephen K. There is oh. history between Karim Khan, the prosecutor, and Bedford Row. You didn't 9. say that last time. You didn't say that last time when we discussed this. <laughs> right. And and so aside from that, and I told you earlier at the beginning of this conversation that I spoke with South Sudanese officials, uh, Stephen K. In fact provided legal advice to the president of South Sudan to shield him from prosecution for war crimes committed during 20, in 2013, was paid about $17 million for, 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 for a report. So I think it's important for Filipinos to ask how much is being paid yes, exactly. for Row 9 for its services, which brings us back to your question. They represent the Philippine government, the state. And so... Uh, if you already have a lawyer representing the Philippines, why would you, as Justice Secretary, provide legal advice to people who whose interests are not the same as the interests of the Philippines? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I found it actually interesting when they hired this uh this this British barrister. They were all praised about her international credentials, etc. It's like, wow, wow, suddenly now you're a fan of European law, legal community members and all of that, you know? But but you're right. Um, I, I, I appreciate that you're giving that kind of background about 
uh, conciliary type of you know <laughs> lawyers. You know they work for certain types of people. You know uh, again we're not here to prejudge, but I think there's there's a track record there. Uh, to look at. So were were you troubled when there was the announcement on uh, who they chose to represent the Philippines? I mean, why why would they even do that? Do you think because they realize they recognize their arguments are so weak and and that they're not taken seriously? Uh, let me let me give uh, one theory, and it it's it's it will seem uh, unfair, but maybe not. You know, the the Marcoses are used to hiring lawyers who influence courts and not in always in an ethical way that's why the marcoses have always relied on their the dictatorship's former solicitor general uh estilito mendoza who has been very instrumental in the appointment of many judges and justices in the philippines including many of those who are now in the supreme court and and that to me not just straddles the line between ethical and unethical, but already often crosses it, you know, into the unethical side. So the Marcoses are used to hiring people who can do extra legal work. Some of that extra legal work being uh, outside the pale of simply lawyering. And then of all the possible defense, or not defense, of all the possible lawyers that the Philippines could have hired to represent. Philippines' position at the ICC, the, the fact that they chose BR9 says a lot. Their research would have gone into that selection. I'm sure they're aware of the background of Stephen Kay. I'm sure they know the relationship between Stephen Kay and uh, Karim Khan. And so I'm, I, I'm sure this was a deliberate choice. Not It certainly wasn't the lowest bid that prompted the Philippines to hire BR9 in this case. Yeah, Maybe it's my lack of, uh, you know, scrolling through the local news uh, coverage, but parang that went off the radar, no? I, I didn't see any local, like I, when news was announced, it was just announced like, just some world-class whatever. So at the back of my mind. Uh, the like problem, the problem, Richard, is, yeah, well, yeah, the problem is that we are, we are often Filipinos and including myself, you know, I mean, knowing the mentality, we're often dazzled by the, the, the mere appearance of someone who isn't local and just assume that a Western person Global. Uh, yeah, represents some kind of a rule of law ideal, uh, does not represent a political agenda, which is both foolish and misplaced because obviously uh, the, the, these, are, these are people who are paid. These are, they, they, we, these are mercenaries without weapons. Exactly. I mean, we have reputational yeah. management industry. I mean, London is at the very cutting edge of this. If I'm not mistaken, former Prime Minister Tony Blair, right, has had meetings, perhaps more than one, with President Junior and uh, and others. Exactly. We know what Tony Blair does, right? One day is in Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. one day is in Dubai. Practically all the well-funded, well-endowed, non-democratic mm -hmm. system. So there is an industry out there, and a lot of that is in London. Right. If I'm not mistaken. So I just, I was just, I just. Wonder why no one did, did discuss this part, the right? Because with Amal Clooney, the man is because she's a celebrity, right? Uh, and 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 of course, the case of Amal Clooney is is for for again for as an outsider, I was like, what Arroyo's lawyer and then Maria Ressa's lawyer is like, what's going on here, right? Uh, obviously, the standard answer is we're lawyers, we're here to help, right? <laughs> like there's no, but but you get what I'm saying, like uh, someone who's quite aware of the whole industries out there. Sometimes I'm I'm looking at this aspect. So so thank you very much, Dr. Carranza, for for also mentioning that because this was kind of overlooked, I think, in 
in uh, local discussions. Now, going back to this, do you think that indeed should Bato de la Rosa or Duterte or some of the former top generals in the, the police force be worried about visiting London or visiting Paris or visiting Madrid? I mean, I see a lot of well uh, endowed Filipinos. I mean, go to Spain nowadays in Madrid. No, daming Pinoy nag invest. And daming gusto mga golden visa, right? <laughs> or at least so like, mm-hmm. what's happening there? Uh, what what would you be your advice? Were you their lawyer? <laughs> You'll never be. Well, a- I, 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 I think Rodrigo Duterte already uh, showed us what his travel plans are by traveling already to China. Uh, I, I think it's an it's indication. It's just like that, China, uh, Guangzhou, Shanghai, Xiamen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, China is a huge country and he he's only visited Hong Kong and Beijing. So there's maybe a billion more people to meet. Uh, and it, it also tells us that um, he's not above what he thinks is flexing geopolitical muscle, uh, you know, putting up a sign that says, China is on my side, should you try to charge me? Should you try to issue a warrant of arrest and have it enforced against me? Um, It's also a signal, not just to the ICC, but to Marcos Jr. Uh, It's obvious that he is concerned that Marcos Jr. might be shifting his feet towards the United States. It's obvious that Duterte is aware that Marcos Jr. has his own family's ill-gotten wealth interests to uh, look after and that a large part of that money cannot be used in the United States because it will trigger, and this is one of the topics you wanted to talk about later, the Magnitsky Act, for example. Uh, But Rodrigo Duterte is sending a signal to Marcos Jr. that should you try to allow or use uh, United States forces, for example, to enforce an ICC warrant in the Philippines, China will not be happy with that. And why would the United States try to enforce a warrant of arrest in the Philippines if it's not a member of the ICC? Well, because it might serve its interest. And it has done that elsewhere in the world, including in Africa, where U.S. forces together with Rwandan forces arrested a Congolese warlord in a third country. So the United States literally sees itself as a policeman of the world, even if it's not part of the police. Yeah, so Attorney Carranza, this is where the argument of our many friends comes in. But, you know, America, I mean, look at what they did to the ICC judges on the Afghanistan issue during the Trump administration, right? They were threatening uh, ICC judges who were looking to accusations of human rights violations by American soldiers in Afghanistan. Look at the horrible things that uh, you know America did in the Middle East. Look at you know hundreds of thousands of people who were affected by the war in Iraq. You know, sometimes in the worst possible ways. So I usually hear this argument that etong ICC na to ay bias, ito ay walang ambag dahil walang ginagawa sa US. And then you have this weird situation, right? There's a global Magnitsky Act which kind of compels, right? Uh, countries to um to you know to exercise extraterritorial jurisdiction with respect to mass atrocities etc can can you give us a little bit of background on that because uh, again uh, uh because i wanted this okay fine let's just go to the issue of jurisdiction because there's another person we have to talk about no the former government uh solicitor general uh, well the former justice secretary now the solicitor general Guevara right um what what is the dynamic you see between Guevara and 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 the current DOJ secretary? Because 
sometimes I'm not sure they're exactly saying the same thing. Sometimes, like, wait, wait, did they contradict each other? And then there's a Supreme Court mm -hmm. case. Can, can you just um break this down for people who are not very familiar? Like, before we even go to the Magnitsky Act, Ano nangyari dito? And does it even make sense to have the former DOJ secretary in your current administration? Uh, what does that say? Does it say something wrong? But but then again, parang iba yung sinasabi ni Kibara. Minsan iba yung sinasabi. Well, yeah, yeah. But, well, from a, from, a, from, a largely, from a largely formal technical level, the Solicitor General represents the state. The Justice Secretary really is the prosecutorial arm of the government. In its cases in the country, the Justice Secretary has nothing to do really with, um, for example, what the Philippines' position ought to be at the ICC. But the Solicitor General representing the state engages with um, the ICC. Now, of course, it's also possible. It's within the powers of a president of the Philippines to ask the Justice Secretary to do that instead. And when I was in the PCGG, for example, our request for mutual legal assistance uh, directed at other states went through the Justice Secretary's office, not to the Solicitor General. So it, it's possible that you can mix the two. You can even have the same person be Solicitor General and Justice Secretary, which is what the Marcos dictatorship did uh, with this Lito Mendoza. So the, the technical aspects to this can be blurred and you can have the same person and you can have the same policy. So obviously their disagreement is political, not legal. Um, and And I think that says a lot about um, what is the disagreement? Why in there's? Oh, sorry. Obviously, they're gonna deny there's a disagreement. But for us who read the statements and all, parang wait lang hindi sila tumutugma. Can you explain, Attorney Carranza, for those who didn't catch this? So, what is the Guevara versus the Ramulia, uh, positions that may give an uh, impression of some inconsistencies? Well, uh, boy, in Ramulia, you know, I, I, I'm not sure anymore whether we were in co the College of Law at the, about the same time. He was ahead of me, but I was there as a freshman. But uh, he's, he's, a, he's a politician, not more than a lawyer. And from a political family that owes a lot to the Marcoses. Um, and at the same time, of course, wants to be its own dynasty and therefore outlast the Marcoses. So there's a lot going on there. Guevara, on the other hand, maybe at the beginning saw himself as a, as a technocrat sitting in a right. you know, legal position. But the problem with that is you cannot be a technocrat when... You know, your, your your president is committing mass murder. So staying on as a technocrat while your president is committing mass murder makes you an enabler of mass murder. And so Leonardo Guevara is an enabler of the drug war killings carried out by Rodrigo Duterte. And maybe in the, to that extent, he, he wants to defend it legally. Uh, he wants to stay at the ICC, try to argue a way out for Duterte, while the Justice Secretary wants to be the kind of populist that he thinks will will amass more power for him and therefore attacks the ICC with, among a local audience, not, not really an international right. audience. It's more so, the public relations game, public diplomacy game, yeah. Right, but here's the thing about it. Um, on one hand, you have Rimulia reiterating the same kind of unfounded arguments that the Philippines is no longer a party, did not did not cooperate with the ICC. And then you have the Solicitor General saying the same thing, but at the same time contradicting himself by engaging yeah, yeah, with yeah, the ICC. Yeah, uh -oh. Right. But, but I think this is also because... Um, 
and I, I've said this elsewhere, right? If this is namamangkasa dalawang ilog, they, they, they feel there's nothing to lose saying one thing but doing another uh, until it's, of course, too late because what you say actually matters legally before a court. You could right. be waiving jurisdiction, which is one of the arguments the Philippines could have raised at the outset, but it did not, which is why you have a decision, three votes in the majority saying this investigation can proceed, and you have two who essentially, the dissenting justices, judges, judges of the ICC saying that the Philippines withdrawal may have already ended the possibility of the ICC exercising jurisdiction. Now, the problem, of course, as the even the dissenters would probably recognize, is that this was never raised by the Philippines. Um, so you have two lawyers who Wait, disagree. So dissent, you're saying the dissenters were preempting an argument that was not raised to begin with? Uh, the dissenters were were deciding on an argument that was raised late by the Philippines. Uh -huh, so uh, it was only raised on appeal. They never right because you know well, when you when you're led by a self deluded client like Duterte who claims he's you know the 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 master of the law when it comes to prosecution and yet does not understand what a treaty is. Um, the, the problem there is that you, you're afraid as a, as a Duterte surrogate to contradict him. And so they never raised this. All, all, all they did was let Duterte rant about the ICC being, uh, like you said, a court of foreign, of, of white judges. But when yeah, you look yeah, at the five people who ruled on their appeal, one is from Peru. One is from Uganda. Uh, well, there's a French judge, there's a Georgian judge, and so it, this is a, a very diverse court where they themselves can't even agree which legal system to apply at the ICC. Yeah. So, uh, 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 Attorney Carenza, another question, because we also hear this argument that what the appeal rejection decision did not address or resolve the jurisdiction issue. I mean, I mean... It's it's getting a little bit. Uh, I, I I don't know how to nicely put it. You know what I'm saying, right? Can you explain that to us? In what sense did the appeal rejection settle the issue of the jurisdiction argument raised by the Philippine government? Well, lawyers will always tell you there are many kinds of concepts of jurisdiction before the court. But what is important here is the jurisdiction to apply the ICC treaty on the state, on the Philippines as a state. That's, that's you know, let's leave it at that first, um, yeah, this idea of jurisdiction. Um, the second important thing to remember, as every freshman law student will learn, is that jurisdiction, objections to jurisdiction can be raised anytime. Right? And that's important. The problem is if you don't raise it at all. Um, or that if you raise it later, when it's too late, because you've already said something else. Um, with, but with, with all that said, um, there is nothing that stops. Remember, so far, it's only been the Philippines as a state that has been arguing at the ICC. So Bedford Dynro, uh, the Solicitor General, the Justice Secretary, they all formally speak for the state. They don't formally speak for anyone else because we don't know who the accused might be, if there will be accused people uh, in this case. So if at all, if ever, Rodrigo Duterte and others are charged with crimes against humanity at the ICC, they will have their turn to raise the
the question of jurisdiction. They will have again, the same to again. say. Right. They can raise this again. It's, it, it, it's, not, it's not even again because they have never yet raised it as mm. themselves. They have not appeared at the ICC. They have not been represented uh, by yeah, so you're anyone. Because at the PR level, at the, as a, you know, as a, Public speech act lang sila na question on jurisdiction, but from legal standpoint, exactly. never procedurally argued that case. Okay, because they they have not been accused of anything. It, it, what has happened so far is that they presume themselves guilty instead of being innocent. <laughs> because why would you defend yourself when you're not yet be, you have not yet been accused by anyone? <laughs> 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 defensive na agad. Bakit? Exactly. Now, I've seen a lot of that cases. Ma'am, di pa ako nagsalita. Ang dami niyo na sinabi. Sinira niyo niya yung dangal ng aping opisina. Yung mga ganyan. Um, I mean, my goodness. I mean, uh, that just tells you about the culture of rule of law. I think people think that with, with intimidation and making noise and all, you can affect the course of action, which unfortunately sometimes happens. But going back to this, um, do you see the probability? I mean, obviously possibility is there, but the probability that some of the top officials from the former administration may indeed face a warrant of arrest like what Putin is facing. Uh, except they're not Putin and they're not from Russia. And, and some of them are not even in government anymore. And they're just private citizens being special guests of, I don't know who you know, you know who, right? Um, are you seeing that uh, prob probability, not possible, probability, meaning more than 50% chance uh, in the coming year or so? Let's say during Marcos era, Marcos Jr. era. Yeah, and that's a good way to... to to qualify your question um, in the coming years or so, because, well, two things to remember. Um, most ICC cases, except for, a, except for a very few key exceptions, last so long before they even lead to a trial. Um, sometimes they last long, even at just the earliest stage, preliminary investigation, which is where the Philippines is at. In Colombia, pre preliminary investigation has lasted almost 10 years, right. uh, but that's because there is a there were peace negotiations in Colombia and, and it just Our, closed uh, just this year. The investigation was finally closed because there is a peace agreement. Um, the exception is Libya because there it just took a few weeks, but that was because the UN Security Council, uh, including with abstentions from China and Russia, uh, allowed uh, the ICC to proceed and issue warrants of arrest. So, the rule is that it will take very long before anything happens. And of course, it is possible that warrants of arrest will be sought by the prosecutor once he concludes his investigation. And I, and I feel that that will be the next step here. Um, but the second thing to remember is that the ICC, by its own admission, is very under-resourced. Um, the fact that the prosecutor has been able to carry out the Philippines investigation is, I think, credit, and I, I will say this bluntly, credit to the staff of the prosecutor's office, not to the prosecutor. Um, Ouch. The prosecutor, the prosecutor has made himself the star of a movie called the ICC in Ukraine and has forgotten that the ICC was not designed just for this war in Ukraine, but for many other wars that are also simultaneously taking place in the world. And so yeah. um, to the credit of the staff of the prosecutor, I think they have been 
they have realized that the Philippines case is not a case where you require a lot of resources to carry out an investigation. What you will require in the Philippines case is a lot of resources to protect witnesses, to protect the families of witnesses, and to find ways to allow whistleblowers to come forward without doing them harm. And that's one of the most difficult parts of this work that's not often reported on, that's not often visible, but that's crucial for this case to move forward. So um, it will take several years. Even if a warrant is issued, it will take years to get that warrant enforced. And then number two, it will take a lot of resources for this investigation to move forward to trial. Now, the time frame is very important because politics is the issue here, right? So if you're Marcus Jr., um, caught between a rock and a hard place, right? R meaning on one hand, you still want to continue your charm offensive with the West, which so far worked because of the exigencies of the new Cold War, the whole EDCA issue, etc. Mm -hmm. Junior as a whiff of breath of fresh air, whatever, you know? Um, so you don't want to alienate your newfound friends uh, or refound friends. And at the same time, you, you don't want to alienate the Duterte's, right? So the, the most sensible course of action would be kick the can down the road. I-dribble mo lang yan, i-dribble mo lang yan hanggang abot na yan sa next admin. And if it's a Sara Duterte, pala na kayo dyan, di ba? Or if it's opposition. But, 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 but that's my sense. Eh. Given Marcus Jr.'s temperament and the algorithm of his political strategy, he just wants to kick this can down the road as much as possible. So do you think that's a feasible option? I Probably some of them are listening to us like, do you think that's a strategy that could work? Let's just kick the can down the road. Patagalin, dribble, mag, you know, throw mods here, you know. Well, I I, 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 I understand the, I understand the logic behind that. If you were Marcus Jr., but you would also not want to kick the can so far that you can't bring it back if you needed it, right? So, uh, and does he need it? Does he need it soon? Is there an election coming up where? His agenda and that of other families in the Philippines might not necessarily be the same. Um, of course, the ICC case is only one of the weapons that either any of these sides in, in Philippine politics can use. Okay, so um, you know, yeah. going back to the Kenya example for, for you know, uh, as a, as a, to illustrate, um, you had two people who were on different sides, but when they were both accused at the ICC, they ended up on the same no, side. These dynamics can, can affect these relationships domestically. Uh, on the other hand, um, you have the geopolitical dynamics that you have laid out very uh, precisely, Richard, where you have China and the US and this so-called Cold War between them. Uh, but then again, you also have the possibility that China and the U.S. will find a way out of this war, of their own Cold War, and uh, learn to live with each other. And what happens to the little figures underneath them who thought that they were siding with one or the other? They'll be left behind to deal with the fallout of reconciliation between big powers. Um, I think, and this is not advice to Marcos Jr., because... Uh, in in many ways, uh, Marcus Jr.'s primordial interest is beyond any kind of, of legal advice. Um, you know, this is this is a country that is in the unfortunate situation of having to choose between a plunderer and a murderer. Um, 
I didn't know so, it was exclusive. Um, I, we have had cases where, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that's right. So I, I think that Marcos Jr. may, may want to consider the fact that um, he can return the money that their family stole, but Rodrigo Duterte cannot return the lives he took. And so where would you fall in that situation? Yeah, that that that's a big difference from that perspective, no? Uh, you, you mentioned the case of Libya and then, of course, the Ukraine issue. The Ukraine, we understand. It's a Europe issue and Europe, you know, ICC being in Europe, I understand why Karim Khan is trying to be the man of the hour. Uh, um, but isn't the Philippine case exceptional also in the sense that you're talking about tens of thousands? I mean, I'm not sure the case was as bad in Colombia. Was it tens of thousands also with the FARC? I don't think so, was it? Um, I, I don't know. You, my sense is the Philippine case was also very internationally covered, right? Yes, it's not in the same category as Libya or, or Ukraine, but uh, it's not just one of the... I mean, no offense to Kenya. I mean, I know that the election in Kenya was really violent back in the day, but the thing with Duterte is that he was in the news cycle for six years and now he's back again in the news cycle. So I'm just wondering about the... Politics of prioritization, if I can put it that way, yeah. Well, there's there's two considerations here. Um, the prosecutor can pick cases, right? The prosecutor can pick cases. And there's a reason why a prosecutor anywhere, not just in the ICC, even prosecutor in Quezon City picks cases. You want to win your cases. You, you don't want to pick cases because they're there. Uh, especially for the ICC in this case, because the ICC is a—it's it, not a regular court that anyone can just go and file a case, and a, a prosecutor is obliged to do something about it. Um, there are steps before even it can even go forward. So when Fatou Ben Souda, the predecessor of Karim Khan, decided that she would examine the Philippines case and therefore ask later on ask for authority to investigate, it was in large part um, prompted by the fact that it's a winnable case, that it's a case that a prosecutor at the ICC can win. And I, I think a, a good prosecutor will understand why it is winnable. Um, it is winnable because among other reasons, you have a defendant who cannot help but incriminate himself. Um, yep. So even that alone is a factor. And it's not a, a joke. It, it is... It is a situation where this defendant incriminates himself constantly. Uh, it's also a situation where you, you, you have evidence that has been laid out for you by media coverage. Um, this does not require um, secretly interviewing witnesses, although you do have whistleblowers uh, that the ICC has already reached out to. So you have several factors that allow you to to win this case, um, and 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 I think that's that's an important consideration here in, in in deciding for the ICC to decide whether it should proceed or not, and that I think has created its own momentum for the ICC here. That's why it has proceeded because there is no reason not to proceed uh, with the investigation. Um, again, resources are will be an issue. Uh, the ICC has a policy paper, and I think this is important to consider. Uh, in 2021, the, the prosecutor issued a policy paper in which it suggested that one strategy it might follow in prosecution is to target middle-level 
perpetrators, meaning those who pull the trigger, those right. who might have been part of a death squad. Uh, it could the be strategy argues police uh, head or something like exactly, that. Exactly, a present level person. Yeah. The the strategy argues that if you prosecute them first, you could turn them into uh, witnesses. You could turn them yeah. into someone who will cooperate to implicate higher officials. Um, that hasn't been very successful when it comes to war crimes and crimes against well, war crimes, particularly um, in many ways because. The, the war crimes cases have involved paramilitary groups that do not necessarily follow a a very clear hierarchy. So it's yeah. hard to say who you know, is on. the subordinate yeah. of whom. Yeah. But we are talking here of policemen doubling as death squads. So this is a situation where that strategy might in fact work. Target the, the middle level officials and then stage a second set of prosecutions for higher level people. So that suggests the possibility where warrants might issue for middle-level officials in the Philippines and not necessarily the highest officials at this point. So if we were, again, I know in the legal profession, people are not fond of making predictions, but if we were to make uh, a kind of a prognostication about what's going to come next is we can expect at least during the Marco Jr. era, should he last the twenty the whole six years term, there will be potentially warrants for us against lower level officials under the previous administration. No? Now there will be some whiff of movement, right? I mean, I think that's more high probability, no more than 50% chance. Uh, yes. Yeah. I think this is important for people to hear because I, I think there are some people who have uh uh, I would say over expectations, and that there are some people who are completely dismissive about it. My sense is the reality will be somewhere in the middle, meaning some mid-level people will be facing some warrants of arrest. But knowing how we Filipinos are, no, and how this could explode, no, I think just the first warrant of arrest, no matter how low-level the person could be, could create a huge kind of uh, media coverage and and political reaction. Which brings us back to Marcus Jr. I want to end our, our conversation on this. I mean. Uh, the more we talk, the more or less. Let's just do a different episodes on A, B, and C because I have in one. No, I usually used, used to do the Joe Rogan style, three to four hours, and then I I realize, parang ayon na bumalik yung guests ko kasi parang they feel assaulted because it, because it could be exhausting. Yeah, like parang <laughs> na juice out ko yung guests ko. So now I said, no, I'll keep it one hour and I'll have them back again later on. Keep it fresh, right? So maybe I'll do the Joe Rogan style with some other people now. Iba yung, ano, lifestyle. Now, going back to this, what is your read of the first year of Marcus Jr.? Because I would say, politically, it's a detox for me, right? It's 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 not 10, uh, but it's from negative 5 to 0, I would say. Like, in the sense that, my goodness, I mean, Ruben, you should know, and for people who work in journalism, public intellectuals, I mean, it was, it was really difficult. And I feel, at least you don't have a situation whereby the president is talking about genitalia, shifting genitalias, problems with their uh you know erectile issues of some of the journalists question him you know like um and and marcus jr doesn't have much of trolls i mean the bloggers turned against him once he purged some of the people who are handling the, the trolls so but i mean son, ako pa yung parang fair sa kanya on foreign policy and then in dds people and also for me it is a detox but i have absolutely no illusion about the human rights situation although the economy is had an interesting piece a few months ago that said, well, it's it's not good, but at least there's a recalibration towards less killing and a little bit more of 
due process or something like that. But but there's also the case of uh, Leila de Lima, right? Uh, Maria Ress and Leila de Lima. Where do you see those cases going? Again, our assumption, of course, here is we are not living in a country with the rule of law, unfortunately. So clearly, political dynamics is 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 a paramount consideration here. Right. Well, I, I know okay. this is hard to call, but is is the recent um, acquittals a good indication, or potentially could be actually the opposite of you know the high point before the difficult things happening? Because I'm hearing very different things from people that I trust that I know they have insider information on this. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think, uh, of course, the situation in the Philippines is that if, if you were to start with the lowest possible bar, anybody, anybody who rises even half an inch above that is an improvement, right? And so when you, when you start with, if you were to start with Duterte and, and say, look, this, this is a person who presided over the killings of tens of thousands of poor Filipinos, uh, a president who succeeds him, no matter who that is, no matter who that is, who doesn't come out and say, let's kill more people, is better. Uh, and so if we use that Duterte standard, then we, we don't really go anywhere because it, it was so low at, at, as far as taking lives, literally, is concerned, that anybody who does not call for murder is better. Um, uh, Ruben, we are also back against that. Sorry, for the sake of argument, um, mm -hmm. I know very well. I know many people who had PTSDs after uh, Marco Junior won, and they were expecting within the first six months we're going to see essentially the completion of the project started either by Duterte or the Marco Senior. I mean, the idea was. Marco Jr. having 60%, 31 million votes, officially at least, right? He's going to go for it. Uh, he's going to go all the way into the China embrace. He's going to go for all sorts of mumbo-jumbos. Essentially, he's going to recreate a dictatorship. Obviously, I, I was not a believer of that. Immediately, my first article the next day was, don't panic, right? Because Marco Jr. has a different ball game. Uh, but I know many people who are not expecting negative five to zero, Right. Uh, but we're expecting negative five to negative four, or maybe even pushing the negative five to negative eight, if if I can put it very crudely, right? So I completely agree with you, right? Like um, we shouldn't take zero. Uh, pain relief is not a good thing. It's just a relief from pain. Mm -hmm. But I'm just trying to be fair in a sense that I I know by heart there were many people who were absolutely panicking once Marcos Jr. won with such a huge margin and they and it's it's Marcos Jr. and Sara Duterte totally decimated oppositions Risa lang nandun sa Senate parang there was a sense of panic mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ruben no, I just uh, want to be fair about well, it I, 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 I hope yeah, you appreciate your comfort when I say detox because <laughs> yun yung PTSD fear ng iba oh. no, I, I understand that but I, I, I think it also that fear and the fact that it didn't come true uh, comes from the premise that Marcos Jr. has an agenda beyond um, the most important one, which is to make sure that his family uh, is able to revise how his father's dictatorship is seen and that his family gets to keep what they stole. Um, everything else... So total rehabilitation. Been, total rehabilitation. Yeah, everything else that he has been doing... Um, tries to serve those two goals. Uh, you don't have to kill people to serve those two goals. Uh, you may have to steal more money in order to keep the money you already stole because you want 
people around you to have something to stuff their pockets with. So you might want to create a, an investment fund so that they can dip their hands into the investment fund while yours, that, your you mean loot is debt fund. Because we're not wealth, so debt. Right. Yes. You might, you might want to try to please the United States on one hand, incidentally, because it makes you look like you're a modernizing person that's different from Duterte, but that's not really your goal. Your goal is to be able to go literally to the United States, get rid of the cases that your sons and Imelda Marcos's grandsons will have to face. This is a civil case against their fortune. This is not a criminal case Can against them. That, so they, what are they, the cases in the U.S.? Sorry again for, for cutting you, because I think that's absolutely right. There are many people, I, mean, I come from the North, right? My, my middle name is Foronda, right? So there are people who believe that what, there are no cases. Those are just fake news. We know that their contempt cases were not showing up in the courts, right? Millions of dollars. Can you, can you ref, give a refresher? There, so there, sure. there are pending cases there, in the court right now, right? Yeah. Still. They're not even they're not even just they're not even just pending. They have been decided. There's a two billion dollar judgment. Oh, there's a judgment. Marcos it's family. fine. You just have to appeal it, right? Yeah. And it's a, and it's two billion dollars. Uh damages. Just and this just is this is a, what's that? <laughs> and this is a judgment that can be renewed every couple of years, and it's been renewed twice, and it has been renewed now past the Marcos presidency. So 2031 renewed. The judgment can be enforced against the Marcoses past the Marcos presidency, past the temporary immunity that he has. His soft mother soft is not immune, so she cannot go to the U.S. Um, there, is, there is a contempt judgment that has now reached, I think, $500 million at least uh, against Marcos Jr. and Imelda for transferring assets despite the court judgment against them. Um, again, that contempt judgment can be renewed past the presidency. There are pending cases that involve several assets of the Marcoses that they've tried to um, claim. Uh, technically, their claim is against the claim of the Philippine government. But now that the right. Marcos family is the Philippine government, um, they would want to be able to use the state as a way of getting those assets, including a $50 million bank account uh, opened in Merrill Lynch here in New York, where Marcos Jr. is a beneficiary. So they have a financial interest in Marcos improving relations with the United States, at the very least so to allow Marcos Jr. to come here, and at most to open up the possibility of these judgments lapsing without any action by the Department of Justice in the U.S., which is unlikely. But that, that's oh. the difference. Um, Marcos Jr. has an interest in his family uh, keeping their fortune. Marcos Jr. has an interest in revising the history of the dictatorship. Wow. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's so you have courts cases what, in New York, in Hawaii. Um, what, what are we talking about geographically speaking? The final judgment is a federal judgment. So federal judgment. originally in Hawaii, but it's, it's U.S.-wide. Uh, there are cases pending in New York involving paintings. That's where the Imelda Marcos Here's aide, Vilma Bautista, was convicted for tax evasion. And then there's a uh, case involving $50 million, which could probably now be $60 million in assets. So there, there's a lot of these cases still going on in the U.S.
And and uh, and you asked me about sorry. Maria Ressa and and Leila Delima, right? Uh, can um, we pause on this? Sorry, sorry, Ruben. Before we go, sure. to the, Let's just stick to the let's just stick to the money issue. Uh, money mm -hmm. trail. Um, there's also this Sandigan Bayan situation going on in the Philippines, right? Some recent rulings on there were attempts for <laughs> there were attempts to push for accountability that got rejected, but there were also attempts for retrieval of what was. Ilgodam, I'm sure you're following that. What is your read on that? The moves on the Sandigan Bayan situation here's a Pilipinas. Well, right, uh, and and well, the first thing to say is that it's unfortunate that the Philippine press has not learned that the okay. way they depict Marcos cases uh -huh. um, feeds into Marcos disinformation. So when you have a headline uh -huh. across all newspapers in the yes. Philippines that says Supreme Court junks one billion case against Marcos. You know, yeah, any five peso per hour paid troll will just use the front page, not bother to look at the case. It's a case against the Tantocos, the owners of Rustans, the yeah. franchise holders of Starbucks, who were given an exclusive duty-free franchise by the Marcoses during the dictatorship and who cashed in on that. Um, the PCGG sued them in 1988. Uh, the problem, as with many other PCGG cases, is that you will not have a paper trail of how Marcos and the Tantocos operated because this was a dictatorship. And then you have a Supreme Court 36 years later claiming there is no written evidence yeah. that Marcos favored the Tantocos. What about the fact that nobody else had a franchise on duty-free shopping in the Philippines other than the Tantoco family? Um, these are self-evident yeah. things that any person who has some legal training and understands that what a dictatorship would know. But unfortunately for us, and also unfortunately with the way the media depicts these cases, exactly. you get piecemeal reporting that doesn't doesn't really give you the truth and therefore um, allows the Marcoses to continue yeah, their gives any person, right? I mean, uh, and, and of course, Imelda is really good at doing that, right? To emphasize the court cases that did not prosper. I mean, obviously, I mean, there could be what thousand cases. There are going to be five or ten that don't prosper, and then by just focusing the five on ten, you give an impression there's no more problem, right? Uh, so that's you're absolutely right. The information management issue is a big issue, and then yun nga, may kasalanan talaga tayo in terms of um strategy, no, not making it easier. Uh, we should have made it harder, right, for disinformation. So on last point of our conversation for today. Um, what is your read on the Maria Ressa issue, uh, the Lima issue? Obviously, they're, of course, different and unique in their own ways. But at the same time, we're seeing a wave of, if I can call it even a wave, of movement in the, so I would say, positive direction. What's what's going on there? What's your read on that? Well, one thing about the Leila de Lima case. <laughs> you know, when the Philippine government argued at the ICC that it is able to prosecute this drug war killings. One of the one of the reports that they point to is investigations carried out by the Senate of the Philippines. Right, correct, correct, correct. And when you look at what they're really referring to, it, these are investigations that Leila De Lima opened, and as DOJ secretary and CHR chairperson, and then tried to follow up a senator. So you you can see the hypocrisy of. Both the Duterte and the Marcos people here, where they invoke Leila de Lima's own role in investigating drug war killings to say, we're able to investigate drug war killings. Um, I, I, I think that Duterte and, as you said, even Gloria Macapagal Arroyo have decided that this is how they 
will this is how they will take revenge essentially against Leila de Lima and the Philippine judiciary is of course notorious for the way it plays politics the way appointments are handed out uh, for judgeships in the Philippines but on the other hand you do have individual judges who have enough self-respect to decide on the basis of what is just. And we've seen that happen in the Imelda Marcos conviction, for example, at the Sardegan Bayan. Um, and we can still possibly see that happen in the case of Leila de Lima. Uh, with the case of Maria Reza, um, you can see there that not even international pressure can change the dynamics of Philippine politics and how it corrodes justice and the way courts function in the country. Um, Nobel Peace Prizes, um, awards by foreign press clubs and governments do not change the way uh, what has always been a corroded system of justice in the Philippines. And so, uh, and I know Maria Ressa will not begrudge me from, from saying that she, she has reached out, people around her have reached out to me for help in terms of you know, finding a way to for, for the justice system in the Philippines to look at these cases in a more professional way, at the very least. Uh, but that's difficult to do, like I said, when the justice system but in the, the Philippines are, is yeah. just too, uh, it's just too corroded. To you need a new justice system. You cannot fix it. Um. So, are you slightly more optimistic on one case versus the other? Yeah, like because but there was a DOJ memorandum. Um, uh, sorry, directive saying that the case of the Lima has to be settled now within less than a year, right? Because this just cannot go on forever. So the moment of reckoning is coming closer than than, than later, right? So are are you more optimistic on one case over the other or, or you know, this could wildly go in different directions? Um, I, 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 I think done. that... It's a false done in the first year. That's, that's my fear. Uh, yeah. I, I think unlike the ICC case, which Marcos Jr. will want to keep as leverage, um, he has no interest in using Leila de Lima as leverage against Duterte. Maybe against, maybe in relation to Arroyo, perhaps. But even that isn't isn't really as, as strong an, a matter for for either of them as as for Duterte. So um, I I think at the right time uh, it is possible that Leila de Lima will you know will will get the kind of decision that. She ought to have gotten in the first place already and be released. Uh, with respect to Maria Reza, I, I think that this is a case, these are cases that have gone as high as they can. And I think there's going to be another round of Duterte trying to influence uh, the way these cases are handled. Um, perhaps one of the things that your viewers can, can watch out for is how Rappler's coverage of Marcos Jr. changes. I am not. Many of them are my no friends. Comment. Uh, no I, comment. <laughs> I, I've I've worked with them, but it, I think Rappler should be subject of scrutiny as much as any other crony-owned or you know Marcos-afraid uh, media outlets in the Philippines and see whether that changes as well. Thank you so much on that. Uh, sorry, I want to add this last, last, last point. Supreme Court. Supreme Court. I think we cannot talk about Philippine justice system without all. So the Supreme Court, the issue of 
well, weaponization or cyber libel is something that they have to grapple with. But the other one, of course, is also the ICC issue, right? We have had a Supreme Court uh, take kind on the ICC withdrawal. Where do you see that? The, the Supreme Court dynamic on the cyber libel aspect and also in the ICC jurisdiction aspect, because I think that puts everything together one way or another. Again, without putting you in trouble, what, <laughs> what's your well, you have Well, you, you have, have Marcos appointees and Duterte appointees, and many of them I don't know. Um, I would only say that if the qualification for many of them is because they were in Davao or they were recommended by a Marcos crony, then you know it's very likely that intellectual capacity isn't one of the highest qualifications that that led them to their appointment. There are, however, justices who I know, and so therefore I can say more about them, who I trust. Um, Marvick was, was we, were, we were in law school together, and I think he's trying, trying his best to do the right thing. Um, the Chief Justice was my colleague in the PCGG, and uh, I have to be honest and say I've been disappointed in how he has not, you know, he, he can inhibit and he may have to inhibit in many of these cases, but at the same time, I think um, there are cases in which inhibition is is is, is a moral coward's way out. Uh, Leaving the field to the enemy. Right, because when, when you are both the leader of the institution and the institution is a justice institution, uh, it's important to, to assert your leadership and, and to and to make sure that you leave behind an institution that, above all, in a country that's been plundered and in among people who have been murdered, that there's some some even just the slittlest hope is possible. Thank you very much on that. Uh, I would say hopeful note. <laughs> I noticed paras din yung uh, background color scheme natin. I think that helps us with our sanity because. I think one of the things that our viewers always appreciate with our discussion with Tony Carranza is as heavy, as intense, as open Haima level, <laughs> as, as intense as our discussion can get. You can see that, it, you know, love the Philippines, right? <laughs> and uh, the glass is always half empty or less than half empty. It's okay, but that matters. Every small victory matters. And, and for me, as I said, I'm not complacent. I, I'm I'm not being uh let's say you know rose tinted in how I view things, but I see the end the arc of history sometimes bending towards justice and sometimes more than other era, and and that's why thank you so much for Tony Carranza for for that very comprehensive point of view. Have a lovely day and lovely week, and I hope we can uh, catch up and on even more positive developments with respect to Philippine justice system. God bless, Of course, thank you for having me. Bye bye. As always, Tony Carranza. God bless.